0: I'm going to invite you to just take out your Bibles and you can turn to the 10th chapter in the Gospel of Luke. You can put your finger there or set it off to the side. We'll get to it in just a couple of minutes. John the Baptist saw a dove and believed. James Whitaker saw a seagull, and believed. Who's to say the one who sent the first one didn't also send the second one? James Whitaker was a member of a hand-picked crew that flew the B-17 Flying Fortress that was captained by Eddie Rickerbacher. Anyone who remembers October, this is a stretch, 1942, remembers the day Rickenbacker and his crew were reportedly lost at sea. Somewhere over the Pacific, out of radio range, the plane ran out of fuel trying to find a landing spot on an island and it crashed into the sea. The nine crew members spent the next three months floating on three little rafts. They battled heat, the storms, and the waves. Sharks, some as large as 10 feet long, battered their nine-foot boats. After only eight days, their rations were eaten or had been destroyed the salt water. They all knew that it would take a miracle for them to survive. One morning after their daily devotions, Rickenbacher laid back his head on the on the on the little raft and pulled his hat over his face. And almost instantly a bird landed on his head. He peered out from under his hat. Every eye of all three rafts, was on him. And he intuitively knew that it was a seagull. Rickenbacker caught it, and the crew ate it. They used the bird's intestines as bait to catch fish. And all, all but one member of this crew survived to tell the story. A story about no hope, turning in to a rescue. A story about how prayers were answered. A story about how a visitor from an unknown island came a great distance to give his life as a sacrifice in order to save others. It's a great story. It's a story that's not all unlike ours. Weren't we like that crew, stranded Weren't we like that crew praying? Weren't we like that crew rescued by a visitor that we had never seen before through a sacrifice that we will never forget? Well, you may have heard of this Rickenbacker story before. You see, Corrine Schwinn had, because she was engaged to the one crew member that did not survive Sergeant Alex Casey Marsick. Corrine says the best miracle in this story is not the bird that landed on Rickenbacker's head, no it wasn't even that Rickenbacker was actually able to capture this bird that had landed on his head, it was the change in James Whitaker's heart, you see Whitaker was an unbeliever. And the crash, the crash didn't change his belief. In the days following death, he didn't think twice about his eternal destiny. The truth is, is that while they were there over those weeks and months, he grew increasingly irritated with John Bardock John Bartok was the crew member who was constantly bringing out his Bible and reading it, sometimes privately, but most of the time out loud, so everyone would hear. Whitaker's protests didn't stop John from reading, nor did his resistance prevent the word from penetrating his soul. It was the fact that right after Bartok had finished his reading for the day. He had read it aloud that this seagull from nowhere came and landed on Captain Rickenbacker's head and it was at that moment that Whitaker became a believer. You kind of have to smile at the length that God will go to to save a person's soul The world at that time was preoccupied with Germany and with Adolf Hitler and with the Holocaust. Every headline in every newspaper and magazine was talking about the actions of Roosevelt and Churchill. The globe was locked in a war that everybody hoped would be the last war, the war to end all wars. And God is focused on the Pacific Ocean on sending a little missionary pigeon to save one soul. The length to which God will go to get our attention and affection is absolutely incredible. But then, that's just God being God. So for the next month, this This morning and then the four Sundays in September. We're going to focus on God's mission, on a father's heart, on Christ's strategy to grow his kingdom. We will dwell together all five of those weeks in Luke 10, in these first 12 verses. We're going to be digging deep into this passage. We're going to mine it for everything that's in it. We're going to focus on the theme of scent as we talk about being the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus. It's my prayer that God will use this series to teach us how to be the best we can be, how to be better disciples, how to be better together, and how to engage even more fully in God's mission. And while it is true that God can and God does use creative methods like, like a seagull landing on someone's head in the middle of the Pacific Ocean to bring people to him. God has a standard SOP, a standard operating procedure where he uses followers of Jesus just like you and me to bring in and to build his kingdom. So that brings us to the text brings us to Luke chapter 10 and this is what Luke writes and this is what the spirit brings to mind after this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go he told them the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has become near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town will wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. This is God's word. The religious leaders of Jesus' day considered Jesus to be dangerous because Jesus was talking about a different kingdom, one which they really didn't understand. But they already knew they didn't like it because it didn't include them. And so they crucified him. In Luke 9 verses 57 through 62 in the verses just preceding the verses we read Jesus outlines the cost of what it means to follow him the price that is there for being his disciple he says no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God disciples Talmudim do what Jesus, what the rabbi does. They do everything the rabbi does. They're to love as the rabbi loves. They're to serve as the rabbi serves. They're to proclaim the good news as Jesus proclaimed the good news. On one occasion when I was in Israel, our rabbi walked us through a hedge. Some people in our group decided they would walk around the hedge. Some decided they would try, the younger ones, jump over the hedge. Some took a shortcut through another section. Without saying a word, he simply walked around again and walked through the same place in the hedge. About the third time he did that, began to dawn on the people that were there that We weren't just going around in circles. Our rabbi was trying to actually teach us something, and that is we follow in the footsteps of our rabbi, in the exact footsteps of our rabbi. We don't try to do our own thing. We do what he does. In addition to hedges, He would go on to lead us through village streets, wadis, tells, mountain passages, and even through minefields, we learn to stay close. You see, in Jesus' day, a commendation often offered to rabbis' disciples was, quote, may you be covered by the dust of your rabbi, end quote. Translation, follow closely. When a disciple walks close enough to their rabbi so that their feet get covered with their rabbi's dust, they become more and more like their rabbi. When you and I walk close enough to Jesus to be covered in his dust, to be like him, we too will become dangerous kingdom bringers. In Luke 10, very first verse, Luke identifies Jesus as Lord. Lord is a term in Scripture. It's a term used by Jesus' disciples and others to describe the one who's in charge, the one who controls, the one who directs, the one who is the master, the one who preserves and governs and rules everything from the universe to the Sabbath and everything in between. Daniel said it in the Old Testament. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. Proverbs says, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Luke is telling us Jesus is Lord. He's in control. He's the master. And he never asks us to do what he hasn't already done or isn't willing to do. He does require that we stay close, very close, so that his dust gets on us, so that we become more and more like him. So Jesus says there is this domain, there is this realm, and it is called the kingdom of God. And Jesus defines this realm as the place wherever God's will is done. Where everything that happens delights God. Where it meets his approval. And there he builds his kingdom. There God is honored. Wherever God is obeyed. Jesus says it exists right now. Already in heaven in fullness and completeness. And Jesus said his mission was to come here to take heaven to earth. To make God's kingdom Up there, also a reality down here where everyone follows his will in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families, and even in our own personal life. Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, of peace, and of joy. Luke tells us in the fourth chapter that Jesus said, I much I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that's why I came. Jesus' mission is to bring God's kingdom everywhere. Jesus is, if you will, the ultimate kingdom bringer. You see, kingdom bringing and kingdom building is a dangerous ministry. It's one that eventually got Jesus. Jesus. And almost every one of his disciples killed. Needless to say, this is urgent. It is unprecedented. And it is a perilous mission. In Luke 6, Jesus chooses people and says, follow me. He chooses 12 of them to be his disciples, to be his principal companions, to be what the scripture says, our Talmudim. He chooses people who have already dropped out of school. They're in the workplace. They're young and they're in the workplace. They didn't cut it in academics. He chose some interesting people. He chose fishermen. He chose a Roman sympathizer, a a tax collector. He chose a Roman hater, put them in the same group, a zealot. And then Jesus designates these 12 as apostles. And the word apostles means sent ones, sent ones. In Luke 9, in the first six verses, Jesus calls these 12 together, and he gives them power, and he gives them authority, and he sends them out in order to drive out demons and to heal diseases. He sends them out to heal the sick. He sends them out to be kingdom bringers. And as Talmudim, as disciples, the scripture says, Luke says, they went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now we're at the beginning of Luke chapter 10. Now Jesus is expanding, and Jesus calls and sends out 72 others. His kingdom is growing. Jesus deliberately chose 12 disciples to correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, numbers are symbolic in the scriptures. They're significant in the Eastern world more than in our Western world. And now Jesus is choosing 72 others. These correspond to the 72 that Moses appointed in the wilderness. He points 70 in Numbers 11, and then he adds two more in the the end of that chapter. And they were anointed by the Spirit in order to oversee the nation, God's people of Israel. It is understood that in Jesus' day, There were 72 nations in the world. You can check that out in Genesis 10. Again, numbers are symbolic and significant. So Luke, who is known for his global perspective on things, is already beginning to focus on God's big mission, on Jesus' plan to one day take this local strategy, this Palestinian strategy, and go worldwide to every nation to the entire world. We've gone from 12-cent ones now to 72-cent ones. We've gone from Israel to the world in one chapter. Regardless, the increase from 12 to 72 underscores for us the magnitude and significance, the importance of this mission. It is surprising to find so large of a group willing And suitable, remember they were appointed to be added to the mission team. To leave family and friends for a time. To take the risk of promoting what for them was a different religious perspective. Imagine how difficult it would be today to raise a group not only of 12, but of 72 in an average church. To get them to come together to pray let alone to commission them to go out into their neighborhoods and knock on doors and share the gospel with people who answered. In Jesus' day, it was customary to send out people in pairs, two by two, on a co-mission. John the Baptist, you see, sent out disciples in pairs, Luke 7. Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs and the early church continued the practice. You know some of these pairs Barnabas and Saul, Judas and Silas, Barnabas and John Mark, Paul and Silas. Pairs. Pairs go for companionship for certain. They go in pairs for mutual support. They go in pairs for accountability. They hold each other accountable so the job actually gets done. But in Jesus' day, they went primarily because two witnesses were required. For a testimony to be considered valid, or legal, or truthful, so they go. You see, for three years Jesus had been—he had been the rabbi to these Talmudim, to these disciples, and they had listened to his teaching. They had been following in his footsteps, literally. They had been watching Jesus' ministry as he transformed lives and communities one at a time. And they stayed close enough to have his dust rub off on them. And then Jesus was crucified. And then the disciples were panicked and scared and frightened. Their hopes were crushed. They retreated to a secluded room. And then three days later when they got news of his resurrection, they were absolutely ecstatic Unbelievable. What was he going to do now? How do you top a resurrection? What's going to happen next? What are we going to do with this amazing news? How's he going to fulfill the kingdom? How's he going to take the next step to build his father's kingdom? Amazing. They didn't know what was going to happen next. But now... After a resurrection anything and everything could happen. They couldn't imagine it, but they knew it was going to be something absolutely amazing and spectacular. And so Jesus Jesus brings them together. And he says, "Here's the plan. This is the strategy going forward. We're going to go worldwide with this mission. Just so you know, you've been watching, you've been listening, you've been learning. You have been practicing and now I'm going to turn you loose. It's you. You're the plan. And by the way, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be stepping out, stepping away and you're to do what I did in my name. Oh, and by the way, There's really no budget for this. There's no money. There's no more teaching that you're going to get from a face to face rabbi. There is no authorized credentialing program. I'm just going to turn you loose. Understand, I will be with you spiritually. I will be with you in spirit. I will guide you. I will encourage you. But the plan for what's next is you. It's you. You bring the kingdom you get to turn the world right side up again? I can only imagine the disciples' response. (laughs) Yeah, right. What's the real plan? You're God. You have been thinking about this plan for all eternity. You have gone through an incarnation. You have gone through a crucifixion. You have triumphed in a resurrection you have been providing for the salvation of the entire world (laughs) and the best plan you could come up with is to send us that's crazy well that was the plan that's still the plan it's about 2000 years later and here we are and we have never experienced anything like this in all of history today we still call it the co mission the truth is we've been practicing all along jesus says i have sent you out you have gone out you have made an impact you have done this you can do this you have stories to tell we all have a testimony you messed up, you've gotten it wrong, you said the wrong thing, maybe you've done the wrong thing, maybe you didn't pray enough, that was okay, you learned, you got better. It's actually rather simple. See, the hardest part, the hardest part will be getting you, my disciples, to leave the safety of this upper secluded room sanctuary and being huddled all together in a safe environment and to get you out into the world because it's dangerous out there. So here's step one in God's perfect plan. I'll appoint you. I'll anoint you. I'll send you out into the world to be my witnesses, to be my ambassadors, to be my kingdom builders. No doubt you have heard these words before. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, while you're going about life, while you're doing your daily things, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything that I taught you. Everything I commanded you to do. And remember, I'm always with you. I will never leave. Ever. Notice that Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. What's the number one command? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And love your neighbor as you've loved yourself. There is no greater command than this, Jesus says. The great commandment is intrinsically tied to the great commission. The great commission is God's mandate to make disciples of Jesus who, like Jesus, love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength, and love their neighbor as they love themselves. Rick Warren is known for saying it like this. A great commitment to the Great Commission and the Great Commandment makes for a great church. Let me say that again. A great commitment to the Great Commission And the great commandment makes for a great church. You see, the great commission is the master's master plan. It's designed for us to do together. Where everyone participates. Everyone. Step two, step two is, and there's only two steps, is to go. To go to every town and every place Jesus was about to go every place needs to know about Jesus everyone needs a word of good news everyone needs a word of hope and healing everyone needs to be invited to join this kingdom now let's let's just be honest for a moment anything designed like this movement was designed appears destined for failure even before it begins I mean, first of all, it begins with just 72 people, and then there are 12 additional disciples, and that's not a lot of people to change an entire world. And most of those people were poor and illiterate. Most were far too incompetent to create a movement that would get headlines, even in the Jerusalem times. Few, if any, had ever traveled beyond their own country They were inexperienced. They were uncultured. They only knew one language and didn't know that very well. Their nation was oppressed. Their neighbors were weary. Their government was corrupt. Their religion was shadow. Second, if you and I look at it, this strategy appears flawed from the beginning. There was no headquarters that was established. There was no professional research or marketing that was done leaders were struggling to execute even the simplest of tasks the mission seemed far too extreme and large it demanded too much from uneducated people was too impatient with long standing traditions they couldn't even agree what to do and the founder of the movement was leaving had left was gone but the movement did not fail. This movement has surpassed any and every other movement the world has ever known. Within 30 years of his resurrection, the message of Jesus was in every port, in every city, in every courtyard of the known world. It was infectious. People were giving their hearts and their lives to Jesus. They were following him and doing what he asked. Their lives were building his kingdom. They were going wherever he sent. By all human reason, this mission should have failed spectacularly. But it succeeded. It's still succeeding. The church and the kingdom are still growing. Today, people scoff at believing in absolutes. But it doesn't matter. Materialism blankets our country. The movement still continues. Churches fight and bicker and split. People break community over the smallest of things and for the most frivolous of reasons. Sometimes it seems the mission is slowing down, but it has never stopped. People have grown crusty. Leaders have gotten nearsighted, but the movement continues. Nothing can, nothing ever will stop it. And yet, We need to raise the bar again. We need to bring this movement of Jesus, his love, his power to our world, to Hudsonville, to Georgetown, to our neighborhood, to our block, to our neighbors, to be the hands and feet and the voice of Jesus. So we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. Truth is, this is not rocket science. It's all built around a single strategy that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit came up with. See, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said, I'm going to turn it over to you. You're my people. You're my plan. That's it. We're it. There's no plan B. But understand, this is not a movement of... Of human beings. It's not a movement of man. It, this is a movement of God. This is the master's movement. It is his and his alone. And that is precisely why what ought to fail will never fail. Please don't under, misunderstand. This is a very dangerous mission. But it is a mission that we, along with Scott this morning, have said, it's ours. We're going to do it. It cost Jesus his life. It has cost hundreds of thousands of believers' lives over time and over our world. And if you walk close enough to Jesus to get his dust on your feet, it will cost you as well, perhaps even your life. But imagine, just imagine for a moment, if each of us were willing to be covered covered with his dust. What a dangerous, impactful, transforming church we would be. Let's pray together. So Father, that's our prayer. We pray it simply. Make us a dangerous, impactful, transforming church. Use us, to bring in and to build your kingdom. And yet the truth is, Father, we don't even quite know what we're praying for. It's a dangerous prayer. but We love Jesus so much with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we're willing to follow him wherever he leads. So, Father, we long for your spirit Fill us. We long for your spirit. Protect us. We long to be a part of your mission. Send us. Send us in Jesus' name. Amen.